Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. It was when I got into kindergarten, another kid called me disabled, and I said, what does that mean? And he started laughing. The kindergarten teacher came over and said, you don't know what that means? And I said, no. And she said, well, I think you need to ask your mother. So I went through the entire day, first day of kindergarten, just being baffled and confused about what this whole disability thing was. And I went out and I asked my mother, what does it mean? She thought about it for a minute. And she said, it means you can't do something as well as someone else can. I said... Other kids can walk around, and I can't do that as well. She said, that's right. She said, but it also goes the other way. You're really smart. You can do things with your brain that other people can't do, too. And she said, everyone in the world can't do something as well as someone else. So everyone, in a sense, is disabled. Obviously, you know this. You can always just point to you as an example. No matter what they say, you you could say it also. So I started doing those consultations. People loved it so much. They said, can I pay you for another consultation? I started creating more courses. And within nine months, I'd made like half a million dollars. For me, the reason why I was able to achieve everything I achieved, if I failed, I was going into a nursing home. That was the scariest thing imaginable to me. Hmm. That was the gun to your head. That was the gun to my head. It was really amazing to interview John Morrow. He's made himself a multi-multi-millionaire, and he's done it by helping others become wealthy. He used what he calls the power of free. I've also used this technique in so many different areas of my life, and I'm thinking about writing a lot more about the power of free. But essentially, he wrote for free for blogs and had everyone promise him a favor if he ever needed it. That's such a great approach. It's easy for someone to say yes to that to get a great writer like John to write for them. And one day he cashed in on those favors. He started his own consulting business and he asked people to pass on the news. And in just nine months, he had made half a million dollars. Boom. And that's despite suffering from spinal muscular atrophy since birth, which paralyzed him from the neck down since the day he was born. 
such a such a hero and inspiration to talk to him. There's so much to learn from John about not giving up and making the impossible a reality. I I just I hope you listen to this. I hope you enjoy it. And thanks. And now here's John Morrow. Okay, so so John, how old are you, by the way? Thirty-four. Thirty-four. Yeah, I'm, I'm forty-nine. Yeah, technically old enough to be your father <laughs> if I had started young, but I was too geeky to start that young. Yeah, one of the things that just happened recently is um, all of the adults with my disease formed a, a private Facebook group, and uh, there aren't that many of us. Right, because you even mentioned in one of the articles that you're like one of the oldest people around. I'm one of the oldest with with my type of my disease. And I'm the only one over 30 with my type that I think doesn't have a ventilator. So yeah, in in part of my world, you know, I'm ancient. But, you know, in everyday life, you know, 34 is just not too bad. Are you um, the oldest one in in your Facebook group? I, I don't think I am. I think there are a few others that are a little bit older there was one in his 40s that just passed away uh. that i think he was the oldest but yeah it's it's really cool to be involved with them but most of the adults are you know in their 20s in that group so yeah i'm kind of the old one there and let me just ask are you is this you're recording right good so so do you find most of the people in the 20s who are on this facebook group a little bit scared yeah, you know, I'm actually not very popular amongst people with uh, with my disease um, because most people they grew up in a in a world where everyone is treating them differently. Like they don't have any expectations for them. That that's one of the greatest uh, trials of having a disability is living in a world where people don't expect you to do anything where most people expect that, you know, you're just going to be at home watching TV, just trying to survive, you know, uh, live out your days as best you can. And because of that, most people with disabilities don't have any expectations for themselves. In their world, that's not normal. It's not possible. I mean, do do they get when you say that you're not very popular among them? Um, is it because you've achieved so much and you you push them? I mean, part part of I think a, a survival strategy is to achieve, yeah, right? Because they say the two most dangerous person, the two most the two much two most dangerous days in a person's life are the day they're born or the year they're born and the year they retire. Yeah, right. Those are when people are likely to die. Yeah. The two years when people are most likely to die. And you're basically saying, um, don't retire just because no matter how great the disability is, like there's always yeah. things to achieve and to do. And I, I should mention, um, by introduction, John Morrow, uh, your blogs, unstoppable.me, yes. correct? You've written, um, tons of blog posts that are so extremely value, valuable. You've built multi-million dollar businesses and we're going to talk about that, you know, um, but it's kind of in the context, I, I, 
it's almost bad that it has to be within this context, but it is what it is. Sure. You, you, it's in the context you, you were born with um, spinal muscular atrophy. You Did got I get it. that right? You got it right. And what does that mean? So what it means is, I mean, to get a little bit technical for a moment, our, our bodies have two different types of nerves. We have motor nerves and we have sensory nerves. So your motor nerves are what allows your body to move. They're all over your body. Uh, your sensory nerves are what allow you to feel, okay? Um, the motor nerves in my body, um, they don't get enough, because of a genetic defect, they don't get enough protein to repair themselves. So over time, the motor nerves die all through my body. So when you were, when you were young, when like let's say when you were a little boy, were you still kind of running around a little bit, or was it fast? It, well, so my disease, I was actually diagnosed at six months old, which is really early. They, there are three different types of my disease in general. That, so they have type 1, type 2, type 3. Um, and type 1 is the most severe, type 3 is the least severe, right? They thought I had type 1 because um, I never walked um, I never even crawled properly. The reason why my mother took me into the doctor, she noticed I was trying to crawl, but I was kind of like dragging my legs behind me. And it looked awkward. And um, she was worried. So she took me into the doctor. And that's when they, uh, they did a muscle biopsy back then. Now they have genetic testing to where they can see exactly what's going on. But back then they did this muscle biopsy and they determined that I have spinal muscular atrophy, and they thought that I had the most severe type. So they told her, you know, she went in, she brought me in, and they said, you know, we've got bad news. And, I mean, that's like the scariest I can't even words. imagine as a father of two daughters. And, um, I mean, my mother told me the story. She said the doctor actually looked down at the ground, and he couldn't say it at first. But he said, I'm sorry, you know, your, your son, because of the type of muscular dystrophy, we think that he has the most severe type. Um, he's probably going to die by the age of two, is, is what they told her. And she said, you know, why? And he said, well, you know, most kids get pneumonia and they just can't fight it, which is what kills the majority of people with my disease, is pneumonia. Um, because your lungs... Are also losing their motor neurons, so they yes. won't be able to expel the yep. so uh, whatever builds up there. Can't cough hard enough. Mm -hmm. So, um, so they told her, you know, that that I wouldn't be able to fight it; that it would happen. And, I mean, I've got the most incredible mother in the world. The response that she gave the doctor, she said she cried for a minute or two. And then what she told the doctor is she said, he won't have to fight it. I'll fight it for him. And so, I mean, for the next, you know, for my entire childhood, she was a warrior, you know. She fought for me the way only a mother can. Um, I mean, she took me to 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 all the best specialists, all the best doctors. She insisted that they allow me in the public school. 
even though they wanted to put me in the, in a school for physically disabled and mentally retarded children. Um, but um, she wouldn't allow that. She actually went to the school board and fought to get me in public school. Um, and she fought to keep me alive. Growing up, I had pneumonia 16 times. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I almost died multiple times. Um, and uh, I mean, probably the worst one, one of the ones that I mentioned in, that, in, the, in the post on Unstoppable, is to help me cough. She had to push on my ribs and sort of supply the force necessary to help me cough. And we did that so many times that my ribs cracked. Mm. Uh, and every time she did it, it was just horrible pain. Yeah, because you're, as you mentioned, there's two types of motor, neurons, motor and sensory. Your sensory neurons are so, fine, so, so you're feeling the pain. So I'm feeling the pain. I can feel everything. Um, I just can't move. And um, so, so, yeah, I mean, she had to push. And she had to do, I mean, so many incredible things. Push on broken ribs. Uh, she had to stay awake all night. And what the other thing they do is this thing called chest percussion where they, you pat on your chest to kind of loosen things up. And she would wake up every two hours and do that, you know, all night, all day. Because, because, and just just for the listeners who are listening, so people listen mostly when they're, let's say, commuting to work sure. or in a gym or whatever. Um, John is sitting here, and you're in a a wheelchair, and basically you're uh, you you can't move from the neck down. Is that correct? Yeah, I can really only move my face, mm -hmm. and even I mean, my face and everything is slowly getting weaker. But basically, yeah, all of the motor neurons. And the majority of my body are, are gone, so I can't really move my arms, my legs, anything. Um, I drive the chair with what's called a sip and puff. So the way it works is I blow or, or suck into a straw to make the chair drive. Um, took me, it's it, quite a bit of practice to learn how to do that, but... Um, there should be like an Olympics yeah. for that or something, like... <laughs> You probably could beat anybody in a race doing I've, that. I've had lots of practice. <laughs> I've been doing it for years now. Um, I mean, at first I had to go like in the parking lot because I, I was worried about running over somebody. But um, but yeah, so that's how I drive the chair. And um, I mean, the, the, the benefit to me is the reason why I'm still here partly is because Number one, I, I, I had incredible parents, especially my mother. Um, but I've also had access to all the best medicine, all the best technology. Um, I, I get the brand, you know, the, the newest, coolest toys all the time that I can use. And, and that allows me to live an incredible life that most people with my disease can't even imagine and the like what like what's an example of a tool you got that you you suddenly installed it and you're like whoa my life just got better so the, one of the biggest life changers was there is a lip operated mouse that i use so i actually move it around with my lips um and it is um 
called Tetra Mouse now. But I, I, I ran into a guy online who asked me if I would like be a guinea pig for this Tetra Mouse. So he, he'd send me different models that he was making in the mail, and I used them, and it just complete. And I would give him suggestions on how to improve it. And now he's got a model that he sells online. He just makes them in his garage for people who need them. Um, I don't think he makes any profit on them. Uh, I think he's just like a retired engineer. Um, but he made this lip-operated mouse that I can use the mouse to just as well as anyone could use a mouse on, how, how on the it computer. How so your lip-operated? What does it mean? So it has two little knobs that go against your lips. One knob moves the mouse around, and the other knob controls the clicks. So um, you, you can wiggle the different ones with... I can wiggle either one with my lips and um, move the mouse around, click on things. It's got the ability to do drag, and um, it actually has a total of five different mouse functions that it can use. So I've even got creative and like learned to use it to play video games and things. I was, you know what? They, I was exactly picturing that I would use it to play video games. <laughs> I, I've done that. I, I mean, I, I work so much, I don't have a ton of time to do it, but, um, but yeah, there are a lot of games that I can play solely with my lips. So I'm just sitting there playing it with my lips. So, so uh, you know, a couple of things. One is, you, and, and then I want to kind of get into um, sort of the heart of what that, what that blog post that went viral was about, like how you kind of took this adversity and, and pushed through it in various ways and of course made money, but, but did other, money's not everything, you did other things. And, um, but you know, you, in the beginning of this, you mentioned that there's a Facebook group of people who, uh, have your disease. And I think in prior generations or decades or centuries, there never was a way for people to kind of aggregate into groups based on, this is not even a common interest, but like a common disinterest. (laughs) Yep. It, it's, I mean, it's like, I was years ago, I was talking with Seth Godin, um, and, you know, he has the whole tribes thing. And I said, it's the tribe you don't want to belong to. But you do. But, uh, but you're in the tribe. But you're in the tribe. And I actually wrote an article for him and everything that he put in a little companion book or whatever for tribes about that. Because, yeah, sometimes you're a part of tribes that you'd rather not be, but you are. And um, it, it actually is amazing the amount of information that we can share in that group. And I tell doctors all the time, all the things that I've learned just from talking to other people um, that no one knew before. Because one of the consequences of of being one of the oldest people with my disease, um, and some of the other adults are running into the same thing, these are things doctors have never seen before Mm. because nobody lived long enough. So there are entirely new things that we're starting to deal with, and we can brainstorm those things as a community. You know, and I, I guess also there are, thing, you know, given the age and how new things will come up that never existed before, it reminds me a little, not totally the same, and I'm not trying to relate it, but my mother had polio as a little girl and had many problems, and now that she's much older, nobody before had ever lived this old yep. with polio. So suddenly there's new things that are happening to the body 
that has never happened to a polio victim before simply because polio victims never lived this long before. Yep. So you discover new things about, I don't know, this, you know, new things that could happen and how sure. to survive them. But but also, what another thing that you said that was interesting was this guy who's a retired engineer is developing this mouse, is not making a profit on it. We always think of, okay, we need the government or universities to provide kind of the research uh, to develop the science, develop the products that will help. But a lot of times it's community and people who care who are really going to have the most passion to kind of develop the things that you need to, to make your life better. Yeah, you can absolutely do it. So, I mean, there are other examples. One of my upcoming projects is um, I'm going to make a portable lift that you can use on an airplane. Um, because right now, um, if you if if you're in a condition like me and you want to fly, if you're not mobile, the the way that it works is they number one they won't pick you up because there are liability issues. You could get hurt and sue the airlines, so you have to pay for another ticket or multiple tickets for people to come with you to pick you up, and then they they pick you up and they put you on this metal tiny chair and they strap you to it. It's like being strapped to a metal bar and they wheel you down the aisle and then people have to pick you up out of that chair and put you into an airline seat. That's the process that they use. And it's extremely dangerous for everyone involved. Um, not only for, you know, like me if I was getting picked up, but also for the backs and everything of people trying to do this in this extremely small space where you can't even stand up straight because, you know, there's luggage over top of you. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to invent a portable lift that will go through the, um, through the airplane and allow people to make the experience much easier, much safer, much faster. So what we'll do, we'll, it will elevate out of the chair move over and go down? Yep. Okay. Um, and, uh, I mean, because the other thing people don't know is, I mean, there's not a, a plane in the world that you can fly in in your wheelchair. It's actually, even if you own the plane, the crazy thing is, it's actually illegal to fly in your wheelchair. Um, it, I didn't know that. It's against FAA regulations. Why can't I just, like, I see your wheelchair, why can't we just sort of uh, strap it to the wall of the plane? They... It's against, the, the crazy thing is, and I've actually spoken to the FAA about this, um, it's against regulations because your wheelchair hasn't been crash tested. Hmm. So it's not an, a, an approved seat. Um, and I've had some discussions about them, with them about it, and um, I mean, they say maybe, you know, they, they might approve it and change the law if I ever buy a private plane. And they might let me ride in the wheelchair as sort of a test case. Um, I had to get doctors to supply me a note that said, because my bones are so fragile, regardless of what chair I'm in, if the plane were to crash, I would probably die. Which or, is so, or, so silly because if the plane were to crash, yeah, a lot of people would probably yeah, die. Yeah, everyone would probably die. <laughs> so... So, so, you know, I want to, part of what, what, I mean, there's a lot of things that make your story amazing, but I think it's your insistence 
that no matter what happens and no matter what condition your body is in, things can be achieved. There are, there are steps that anyone can, can take. Sure. And I get the sense when you're writing that you're not writing about yourself, but you're writing for everyone. There's steps people could take to kind of make their lives yeah. better. And, and, and in particular, financially better. So, uh, because a lot of what holds many people back is the feeling that they can't be financially free. Yep. And so you, you've talked about how you were encouraged not to make any money because you had to make less than a certain amount in order to stay on Medicaid or Medicare. Medicaid. I, get Medicaid. Them I get them confused. But, uh, uh, but you figured out a way around that. You, you wanted to make money. You didn't want to just sit around and watch TV. I did. I mean, it was... So I was in my 20s. This was 2010. Um, I was on Medicaid. They were paying for um, about 40 hours a week for nurses to come in and stay with me. And uh, they also paid all of my doctor bills and everything. I mean, in total, it was probably over $100,000 a year that they were paying. Um, and uh, But I was limited to $700 a month. You couldn't make more than $700 a month. The way it worked, so every state is a little bit different in the way that they handled this. The way it worked in North Carolina, if I made more than $700 a month, I had to give them all of the excess. So um, that's crazy. So if I made five grand, I'd have to write them a check for forty three hundred. You know, um, so it sort of just doesn't make sense to work when you're in that situation. Um, so most people with severe disabilities they don't work because you're you're sort of incentivized not to work. And and to some extent, a lot of people who don't have disabilities think that's the dream <laughs> to yep. not work and to have benefits uh, around that. I'm not, I'm not being political here. Sure. I'm just saying a lot of people just don't like their jobs and, and they'd rather watch TV all day or do something else all day. But you figured out a way to kind of, A, get through this loophole, but B, uh, do things you enjoy and love that is quite lucrative. Yeah, well, the terrible thing is, one of the things I've noticed talking to a lot of people that are trapped in that situation I mean, in some ways, it does sound like a dream because you get taken care of for free. You don't have to do anything. The downside is is you go through your life feeling entirely useless. And people's sense of self-worth and their confidence just goes to the floor. Which, which affects health. It affects health. And a lot of people, you know, they, they basically give up and die. I've I've seen multiple people with my disease that they just basically one day decide to refuse treatment and they die. Uh, and and is because they're obviously they're depressed. Yep. Uh which is why they refuse the treatment. Maybe their caregivers passed away or are no longer around yep. or they never had and now they're out in the in society without kind of the buffers they had before. Uh and they just how, how do you how, before we get into kind of how you sort of, you know, started doing your many achievements, how did you kind of overcome initial depression? So one of the things is just the way I was raised. Um, I mean, I was very lucky. It was funny. My mother never told me I had a disability when I was growing up. I didn't find out in kindergarten 
even what the word disabled mean, meant, or just the idea of, of a disability. Um, it was when I got into kindergarten, another kid called me disabled, and I said, what does that mean? And he started laughing. And the, the kindergarten teacher came over and said, you don't know what that means? And I said, no. And she said, well, I think you need to ask your mother, right? Um, so I went through the entire day, first day of kindergarten, just being baffled and confused about what this whole disability thing was. And I went out and I asked my mother uh, when I got out of school, I said, what does it mean? And she thought about it for a minute. And she said, it means you can't do something as well as someone else can. And I said, so, you know, other kids can walk around and I can't do that as well. She said, that's right. She said, but it also goes the other way. She said, you're really smart. You can do things with your brain that other people can't do, too. And she said, everyone in the world can't do something as well as someone else. So everyone, mm. in a sense, is disabled. So, so, so kind, of, um, kind of the flip side of that is you kind of take an inventory of what you maybe can do yes. better than others. Do you think everybody has something they can do better than others? I think so. I think everyone has something. Um, and the key is to find that something. And my entire life, my, my mother, my teachers, I had tremendous teachers, developed my, my sense of, here are all of the things I can do with my brain. I can program computers. I can write stories. I can do all of these incredible things. And so when I grew up, I had a sense of self-worth and confidence. I knew that I could contribute something to the world. And so I wasn't depressed. I was frustrated because I knew I could contribute, but I was trapped. I actually got job offers. When I, I, I graduated college, so I went to UNC Charlotte. Um, and um, What did you major in? I majored in English literature. Um, and, um, I, uh, when I graduated, I had actually 12 job offers from where, from different places, everywhere from, uh, the, the food lion, which is a, a grocery store chain. They wanted me to be a manager to, um, a radio station because I managed a radio station in college to, um, two top real estate firms because my father was a real estate developer, and he taught me a lot about real estate, so they offered me jobs. And my father also offered me a job. Um, and I couldn't accept any of them. And some of the jobs from the, uh, from, like, the real estate firms, they were six-figure job offers right out of college. Well, why do you feel you couldn't accept any of them? Because if I did, I would lose all of my medical benefits. Unless you wrote the check. Unless I wrote the check. And it wasn't quite enough money to be able to pay for everything myself. And at the time, I couldn't get insurance. This was before Obamacare. 
So I, you know, it's a pre-existing condition. If I went and asked for insurance, they would just laugh at me, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, I was, I was trapped and frustrated. So what I started doing was writing articles for free for different blogs on the web. And um, What would you write about? What were some of your first blogs? So I was writing about, um, at first I started with personal finance because my father taught me a lot. Um, and I even worked for my father for two years, totally free of charge. And um, he basically, the deal that we made was he would basically pay all of my bills and everything. And I would come work for him. So it was a way to get around the problem. And What did you do for him? I, I raised money for him. So he's a real estate developer. And um, he needed investors. And one of the things that I learned, so being in a, in a wheelchair has certain advantages, okay, that most people never exploit. But I do. So, I mean, you really shouldn't feel sorry for people in wheelchairs. I mean, when I go to the DMV, they let me to the front of the line. People give me discounts on things all the time, even though I don't ask for them. Um, and one of the other things I learned growing up was that if I tried to ask people for something, they almost never said no. And um, so, so you would go to the so let's say your dad w was he had an idea to develop some land into a sh shopping complex yeah. or whatever and needed investors. You would make the appointment and you would go to the person's office. Okay, yep. someone would help you. Presumably, you get to the person's office. Yep, and you're there and you're pitching the the dream. And what would their reactions be? So I would cold call uh, on. On different investors, I'd show up at their office. Number one, they're not going to throw you out. You're you're in a wheelchair. People would feel terrible about that. Um, I would sit there and talk to the secretaries until they could find a moment to squeeze me in. And um, I would go in and I would talk to them about whatever the development was. And the only thing I would ask them to do is if they were interested just to go see it. So I, I wouldn't ask them for money. I would just say, you know, you know, do you want to take a trip out to the site? And um, going in there and talking to them like that, I had almost a 100% close rate. Almost nobody said no. No to, to the visit or no to eventual no, money? No, no to the visit. And we ended up constructing the visits to where we would bring 10 people out at a time. And um, my father would get like the mayor to show up and talk to them about it, do this whole show. And um, we would spend time with them. It was all really impressive. We would show them all the numbers. And literally to those meetings too, we never had anyone leave without writing a check. Ever. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life 
so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of en entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use 
HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it, hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options, hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Run me through the economics of what a real estate project looks like. So let's say it's a shopping complex, or I don't know, what kind of complex would it be? Uh, uh, so the main thing he did was he would buy farmland from families, and then he would get it rezoned, and he would put in the utilities, you know, electricity, plumbing, all of those things. And then he would sell the land to other developers that would then build whatever he, he had zoned for. So it could be shopping centers, it could be neighborhoods, it could be whatever. But all he handled was basically the land part of the deal. I kind of feel like this is a, a clean business to to go into. You don't have to deal with construction companies and all the um, architectural approvals and, and all this stuff. You kind of have to, you, you have incentivized sellers, like let's say uh, families that are no longer into farming for various reasons. You buy their land, not cheap but relative to what it is rezoning it is involves uh building a relationship with the mayor and the town council like hey we're gonna bring in more taxes we're gonna build out a suburb and it's gonna bring in more money for the town and and then you simply flip exactly that seems like a very good business model it is and my father made a ton of money i mean over the years he's made millions and millions of dollars doing this because typically when you rezone the, the land, it doubles or triples in value immediately. And what he would do, and it's very clean, he would even get contracts with the other developers who were going to buy the land, and he would get the contracts contingent upon rezoning. Because their model is, is to, to build and then yep. to make uh, X amount more. They don't want to deal with the farmland and yep. the buying the initial land and dealing with the rezoning. So you, yep. it, everybody's doing their kind of part of the, almost like the supply chain from from uh, farmland to office complex. Exactly. So, and what my father would do is um, he would get an option on the property. Where, so he would pay them, he would say, okay, I'll give you $100,000, but I'm going to go in and get your, your land rezoned. And if it's rezoned, I'll buy it for X price. If it doesn't get rezoned, 
I'll walk away, but you keep the $100,000. So it was, it was win-win for everyone. Yeah. So he would do that. And um, then once it got rezoned, he would have to pull together the money to buy the land. But he would already have contracts from developers who were agreeing to, to buy it. So I would go to investors, you know, here's the contract from the developer who's going to buy it. You know, here's the rezoning plan. Here's the mayor and everything they think. I mean, it was just... I feel like writing you a check right now. Like, yeah. how, how could anybody not write a check for that? Like, the money was baked in. Yeah. So I would do that, and over two years, I raised $50 million for different land deals that we did. And um, it ended up becoming a pretty big company. Um, and then the real estate crash happened, and all of the developers couldn't get financing to fulfill their contracts on the properties. So literally every contract on every property fell through in 2010. My father lost $50 million. He lost everything. Um, did you, um, did, how did he react? Or did you see him cry? Did you, how did, what was his worst moment in this? He was very, very, very depressed. Um, I would say borderline suicidal over it because he went from a man who they treated him like a king in, in, in these little towns where he'd go buy the land. Um, and he's, you know, he's spending millions and millions of dollars. And um, he went from that to fixing up cars in the garage and trying to flip them. And he would even clean out office buildings at night um, because he didn't want anyone to see him. So it's like a classic story of like real estate mogul to janitor. Yep, he lost everything. And in, in the process of losing everything, he also couldn't support me anymore. So I was on Medicaid. And, you know, my father had been paying my rent, all of those things. Um... I was on Medicaid. I couldn't make any money. The real estate was just in shambles in 2010. I needed to find another career. So for the past two years, I've been surrounded by millionaires, you know, raising money for all of these deals. And I learned a ton about personal finance. So I started blogging. And within two months... I got nominated for, it was like a Webby Award for the best new personal finance blog in the world. I started getting all this traffic. Um, and I started getting offers from other big blogs to write for them. So I started saying yes. And some of them even offered to pay me. And I, and I said, well, you can't pay me, but I'll tell you what, if you like the article, one day I'm going to ask you for a favor. And you can't say no. And so I started writing articles for these sites. I became one of the most, if not the most popular writer on most of the sites that I was writing for. What would be like a typical topic that would get really popular? Like what would be a typical article that would get really popular? So most of the things I was writing about for these different sites was marketing, blogging, writing. Um, I'd always been a pretty good writer. So I wrote articles about how to be a better writer. Too. And um, some of them went mildly viral, 
you know, a few thousand shares. Uh, and then I started writing ones in 2009 and 2010 that went majorly viral. That, I mean, over a million page views viral. Mm. And like what's one of them? So one of them was a story that I told about my mother. It's called, called On Dying Mothers and Fighting for Your Ideas. I wrote it for Copy Blogger. And um, that one went insanely viral. About a year later, I wrote one for the biggest blogging site at the time. It's a pro blogger um, and called How to Quit Your Job, Move to Paradise, and Get Paid to Change the World. And that was after I had moved to Mexico. That one went insanely viral. Uh, so so, so let's, let's focus on that one. So you went to Mexico to reduce your healthcare costs and kind of this was your loophole of getting around the Medicaid uh, uh, thing. This was my escape. So Medicaid was even, they were having a budget crisis. They were talking about reducing the amount of support they would give me. And my mother lost her job, got laid off all at the same time. During the recession, you know, everyone was having trouble. How did you, like, were you getting depressed? Have you ever, like, like so your mom and dad now were depressed. <laughs> and yep. was this a weird situation where you kind of almost had to uplift them? So I ended up having to, for a few years, um, yeah, I mean, I, I had to, I bought, like, when I finally got going in Mexico, I mean, I bought my father a car. You know, I did all different kinds of things. That must have felt good. It was to go from a guy who was on Medicaid, who couldn't support himself, to supporting myself, both of my parents, and everyone around me. Yeah. I mean, when I bought him the car, I cried. And he cried. Um, and it was a beautiful thing. And I mean... You know, he ended up turning everything around. He's doing fine now, all of that. But um, for several years there during the recession, it was really hard. And what I did was, so I, I was writing all of these articles for free. And I finally decided, all right, healthcare is cheaper in Mexico. I can get everything I need for $1,500 a month. Get round-the-clock care from registered nurses. All of these things down in Mexico. So when my mother got laid off, we packed our minivan that's, uh, that's sitting outside your studio here with everything that we could fit into the minivan. We had it loaded down. We had a bit, my hospital bed on top of the van. And um, it was so loaded down, I mean, it was like almost scraping the ground. And we drove over 2,000 miles from Charlotte, North Carolina, down to Mazatlan, Mexico. And um, I'd managed to get a contract, or at least for six months, on this beautiful common resort. What I did was, this is another little trick for everyone, if you want to rent a, a condo in, in a nice building, one thing you can do, I've done this multiple times, is I called... Every owner in the building and asked them, so it was like over 50 different owners that I called and, or emailed and asked them if they wanted to rent for, for it to me for a year. And like eight of them said yes. And I basically told them, whoever gives me the lowest price, I'll rent your condo. 
How did you get their numbers, by the way? Because that's usually, it's not necessarily available information. I, I found the, um, so they had like a homeowners association. I found their homeowners association directory online with all of their contact information. Hmm. And um, so, yeah, I, I reached out to all of them. And ended up getting a condo for way below market price. Because there's like this reverse auction, essentially. Yep. So they they underbid each other. So, I mean, they started out at like... So this is the, the nicest resort in Mazatlan, Mexico. It's a place where doctors can't afford to live, that live there. Um, it starts at about $2,200 a month for a two-bedroom condo right on the ocean. I mean, you could throw a rock into the waves. It was so close. Um and, uh, I mean, private resort, private restaurant, full-time concierge, private, um, like, grocery store where you could buy stuff. I mean, just this amazing. I've never seen anything like it in the U.S. Traveled all over the U.S., nothing was as good as that resort that I lived in down in Mexico. And I negotiated it down from 2200 a month to 1500 a month. Hmm. And I went down there and... Um, as soon as I arrived, I sent emails to all of the different sites and said, all right, now I'm going to cash in all of my favors that I've earned. And um, for a lot of them, I'd written the most popular articles on their site. I got into tons of traffic. Um, and I said, I want to start doing consulting with different people. And in particular, Brian Clark over at Copyblogger, I'd written a bunch of articles for them I'd even edited articles for other people. I'd worked for a copy blogger over 40 hours a week for free mm. for a couple of years. And so I, and, and he knew that one day I would ask for something. So I said, I want you to send an email to all of the copy blogger readers and tell them that I'm accepting consulting clients. So, so I want to, I want to, um, unpack that for one second because I think people underestimate the power of free. So a lot yep. of people say, well, I've got to work my full-time job. I can't, and then ra go home and raise my kids. I can't be doing work for free. But but A, free is kind of how you build your skills without yep. having to, to worry about deliverables in some sense because like, yep. it's free. And B, Obviously, you know this. You can always just point to you as an example. No matter what they say, you you could say it also. Yep. So yeah, I mean, I um, at Copy Blogger, I'd become the most popular writer on the site. Um, I was editing other people, and I trusted Brian to one day repay that to me, and he did. I mean, a hundred times over. So as soon as he, I, he put out an article saying, you know, John's open for business is the kind yeah, of consulting he lived. And it, what kind of consulting did you offer? At first I was offering, I'll, I'll critique your blog for 99 bucks. So I did that and he put it out there and I got 300 people within 24 hours. Wow. Who wanted me to do it. So what, that's like $30,000. Yep. Um, so I started doing those consultations People loved it so much. They said, can I pay you for another consultation next month? I had people start asking me that. So I went over to PayPal and I set up a recurring thing to where they could pay me $99 a month. 
to come take a look at their blog. So I converted that into, um, I ended up getting, I think, 30 people who did that. So that was an immediate $3,000 a month on autopilot. Um, and the critique only took about 30 minutes that I would do. But still, thir- 30 people times 30 minutes. All right, that's a 15-hour work week. Yep. And that, that was $3,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And over time, my reputation you know, started expanding. I started getting more and more bigger like companies starting to come to me. And I raised my rates up to $500 an hour. And, I mean, this is all in the span of two or three months. Um, after about three months, I was making over $100,000 a year in consulting revenue. And I was also building out my own um, product on the side where I would teach people how to write guest posts for these other blogs. So, so, so in the how to write guest posts, so, so it's a course, it's not only how to write and what topics are interesting and how to find topics and, and how to write about them, but also how to maybe pitch a guest post, what are the best them. blogs to, to pitch to. Yeah, I even gave them, you know, here are the 100 best blogs that you should go to, here are their email addresses, all of those things, um, how to pitch them, how to write your posts, what to do after your posts, all of those types of things. Um, and I called in another favor from different people and ask them to promote it. and um, Which was good for them because they wanted good guest posts exactly, on their blog. Exactly. So I asked those different blogs to do it. Um, several did it without anything in return. And um, I made, I put it on sale. It's like $35,000 in 24 hours. Wow. How much was the, how much was the course At cost? the time, it was two or 300 bucks. I ended up raising the the price over time to six hundred bucks, um, and um, PayPal froze my account because I'd made you know so much money in twenty four hours. Right, they flagged you. It was unusual behavior in yep. your account. Yep, and it ended up taking me six months to get all of that money unlocked, hmm. but I finally did, and. Um, then um, I started selling the course more and more. And then I finally launched my own site. And um, Unstoppable.me? No, this one was, um, it's called Smart Blogger now, smartblogger.com. Okay. At the time, the first domain, domain name was Boost Blog Traffic, which I was sort of known for a guy that could get a lot of traffic. So I taught other people how to do that. And so I launched that site. I put up a an opt-in page just for a pre-launch where people could put in their email address if they wanted to be emailed when the site opened. And within two months, just thanks to all of the people that I'd got to know by writing free articles for different things, I had 13,000 people on the pre-launch list hmm. just within two months. Um, and so I started the site. I started writing articles. And I started creating more courses. And um, within nine months, I'd made like half a million dollars. And what, what was the biggest, was it the courses that was selling the most? The courses, I also created a high-end coaching program where I would coach someone for an entire year for $10,000 per person. Um, 
I sold that out several times. I started selling more and more of the courses. Um, and it just grew. And uh, the traffic grew. And um, I mean, now it's, it's a seven-figure revenue business. Smartblogger.com. Yeah, smartblogger.com. The combination of courses, coaching, um, and is there, are there other revenue items? It, now it's mostly courses. Um, I mean, over time, we've had 23,000 students go through our different courses. Um, Has we, it worked for them? Like, out of those 23,000, like, how are they doing? We've had quite a few success stories. Um, so, like, um, Danny Any, which is, he's built a very large business, very large blog um, called Miracy. Um, Jennifer Gresham from Everyday Bright. Um, and there are even people, so, like, before we started the interview, Ryan Dice was talking about, you know, Russ Canterbury. Um, he was that that runs all of their editorial for their company. Uh, Tommy Walker, who runs content marketing for Shopify. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean there are a lot of different people who have gone through the courses and and gone on to do really really big things, um, and that feels amazing. We actually catalog. Uh, we have a, a file that we call love letters. And every time we get a love letter from a student about all of the results they've gotten, we put it in that file. And it's become thousands of different love letters that we've gotten from people. That's incredible. And so do you do you also now still write every day? So that's one of the things I'm just starting to get back to. So one of the things I ended up getting, the business grew, and I found myself switching more into, into a managerial role. Because I hired all of these other people, and before I knew it, I wasn't writing anymore. Well, and also the high end coaching, they're calling you it and was. they expect ten thousand dollars worth. Yep, that's a drag. It was. I ended up canceling, so I did three coaching groups like that, and I ended up just deciding it's not worth the ten thousand dollars. It it takes too much of my time and attention. I, I got people spectacular results. But when I looked at it, I was actually like earning less per hour on that than than like the company paid me in salary. Let me ask you a question: Like, what if you charged a million dollars a year um, for coaching, and you know, if you only got one client, that's good. Yeah, I I could, and but the thing is, I ended up deciding about six months ago or a year ago that what was most important to me is to write every day. And that, that was actually more important to me than money. And so I started reorganizing the business around that. And it's taken me a while. I just moved someone into a, a chief operating officer role, promoted my, my editorial director into that role. So he's now taken over basically managing the company. And instead of having seven people report to me, I have one person report to me that I talk to. Everyone else reports to him now. Um, that's freed up a lot of my time. And um, what do you what do you like to write about now? So now I'm writing mostly for Unstoppable.me, um, which is basically about 
I mean, this is where I heard of you. Yep. Somebody, a good friend of mine sent me your your article and I actually forget which good friend now sent yeah. it to me. I know it was a good friend because normally I don't read anything sent to me. But uh, I read I read your article and I'm like, this guy is amazing. I have to speak to him. So, so are you mostly write about your own kind of story? Yep, so what I'm trying to do right now is most of the personal development community is what I call, I mean, pretty light and fluffy. I, I agree. And I think it's getting inundated and I don't know why. I, I don't really know why either, but I, I never identified with most of it um, because for me, getting to where I am has been an immense struggle with extraordinary pain. And um, it's been just like this fight to to break out of poverty to contribute something of value poverty to the and the the prison of not being able to be as mobile yeah. as others and and you know we, we've been glossing over some of the story but you were in a, a major car accident at one point where yeah. you were like in a in and out of hospitals for for how long like what what happened I was in the hospitals for about a year um I mean, the, the wheelchair was like on top of you. You were on the road. Yeah, it's like horrible the way you described it. It's it, like it was awful. Yeah, I was, I was. Dry, uh, so I have a minivan. I sit in the passenger seat, um, or I sit where the passenger seat would be in my wheelchair. We have it tied down, um, and I had a seat belt and also even a metal bar across my lap, and. Um, a guy was late to work at Wendy's and he decided to speed through an intersection going 80 miles an hour. And uh, we were the first car he hit. He ended up totaling five cars before he came to a stop. But um, he came through and he pretty much ripped off the whole front end of the van when he hit it. And all I remember is lifting into the air and feeling my head hit something and just blacking out. Ugh. And it, my head actually had gone through the window. And um, the metal bar, the seatbelt snapped. The metal bar snapped. That was uh, that was in my that was across my my legs. It, I mean, it like broke a steel bar. I came out of the chair so fast, and it broke my my leg too, my femur on my leg when that happened. And yeah, I woke up underneath the chair my with the chair laying on my legs. My legs were broken in a total of 17 places. Um, my head was all cut up. I mean, I had blood pouring down my face because my head had gone through the window. Who was driving? My, my long-term caregiver... Was she okay? Um, it called him Sarge. He was a guy. He um he was relatively okay. He was shaken up, bruised. Um, but when I woke up, uh, I called him Sarge. His name was Ron Sargent, and I uh, said, "You know, Sarge." And he looked down and he saw me. And when he saw me, that's when he looked up and the whole front end of the van caught on fire. Oh my gosh! And um, the fire. I looked up and all I could see through the blood, the the fire was coming through the air conditioning uh, vents. 
that that were in the front of the car. And um, he ran around, and there was a guy from a gas station that ran over. They pried the door open, and they pulled me out of the car, out from underneath the chair. He got burned on his head when he was pulling me out of the car. Um, but he got me out before the fire got to me. And um, I was just laying there on the sidewalk. And my feet were turned around backwards. My legs were just shattered. And um, I couldn't feel anything yet, though. I guess I was in shock or something. Um, but I could look down at them and just realized this is really, really bad. And the first ambulance arrived, and he actually said, I can't take you. Because the second person, he was going so fast, he went through the front end of our car, plowed into another lady directly in the passenger door, pushed the passenger door all the way to the driver's side, amputated her right leg. Ugh. And she was bleeding out in the car. And um, so the first ambulance had to take her. Finally, another ambulance came, took me. About 30 minutes later, the pain started. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I went to the hospital. At first, I stayed a month in the hospital. They couldn't do surgery. Normally, they would do surgery and put pins and metal plates and all of these things in. But because I've never walked, my bones weren't strong enough to support that. So they had to just do the best they could setting the bones. They had to reset the bones twice, all 17 breaks, while I was there, which is the most horrific experience of my life. Um, but um, for, for I don't know what reason, they didn't put me to sleep. So I'm sitting there, you know, while they're resetting. Didn't you the, beg them to put you to sleep? I did. I begged them. I yelled at them. I I said everything imaginable. I get pulled to sleep if they want to pull a tooth out. I say, bring in the anesthesiologist. I'm going under. I I mean, I was. I don't know if it was because I was on Medicaid. Maybe they were worried about my lung capacity if they put me to sleep. Mm. I don't know what the reason was, but I went through that twice awake, which was, I didn't even know it was possible to hurt that much. Mm. Um, but um, but yeah. So I had to go through that for a month. Uh, I had internal bleeding, too. Um, and so they had to manage that. And um, eventually... I, I, have a, I have a question about sure. the, the legs. Like, given that you weren't going to walk, why did they bother fixing the legs? Does that sound like a stupid question? No, it was actually discussed. They talked about amputating one of my feet. Um, and, um, it was actually considered. And, uh, I mean, I didn't really need my legs. They could have just cut them off. And it probably would have accelerated my recovery if they had. But, um, I mean, ultimately we decided that they, they thought they could keep them. Uh, it did cause me a lot more pain to keep them. Um, but they ended up, you know, fixing me up relatively well. Even today, though, like when they take x-rays, you know, they can see all of the 
places where the bones were broken, where it wasn't totally healed. So even today, I have to wear braces on my legs to support the bones because they'll they'll never heal all the way. Do you think there'll ever be, uh, and I'm sure there will be at some point, so the question is, in our lifetime, do you think there'll ever be like, almost six six million dollar man bionic legs where like from your brain you could kind of control uh what your legs are doing and you would be able to walk around yeah it's already been invented dr nicolaylis at uh, duke university um kicked off the um the world cup two years ago with a uh, guy that he'd built a brain machine interface where he'd created bionic legs for a guy that was paralyzed and he kicked the soccer ball to to begin the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, so those types of things are coming. The The major thing right now that's holding it back is they have to do brain surgery to install chips in your brain um, to, to be able to do that. Uh, why, why, why can't, like, like, if I'm just conceiving this as an engineer, I would think, like, you know, kind of like how that lip mouse works, why don't we first do something which is externally controlled before we start fiddling around with brain surgery? I, mean, I guess, so if you're going to do a thought interface, I mean, they can do these things where they put these things on your head, but apparently because it's not enough direct contact with the brain that you can't control it as well. I'm like, what if I could just go like, le- move my head to the left, and that means take a step with the left leg. Move my head to the right, it means take a step with the right leg. Yeah, there are those kinds of things. Um... And um, and I'm even saying now, like no amputation required. We're gonna fit these like bionic or or extra legs around your legs, and that's how you do it. Yep, it could be done. It could be done. I mean, in my case, it would still probably just the weight of gravity of standing up would probably break the bones. Mm. And my body again. Mm, so you don't want to do that? No. For someone who is paralyzed, though, who has relatively normal bones, something like that could definitely work. The reason why those things don't happen is for the most part, you know, people in those conditions don't have the money to experiment with them. Mm. For me, the most likely outcome um, for something like that, I mean, I think it's, it's there's no question eventually I'll have a brain chip. And what will probably happen is I'll have mechanical arms attached to the wheelchair that mm. I'll be able to move um, purely by thought. Um, and um, so I'll basically be a guy with these extra arms that are attached. Seems like this is a topic by. you could also write about. Like you could be a futurist around these ideas. Yeah, I'll probably talk some about that. Because you know a lot that. about it. I do, and I constantly research it. Um, and I've even talked to them about going on trials and, and being a test subject and all of that on those things. Um, they don't have FDA approval yet to, to do those on uh, a lot of people just because of the brain surgery that they have to do. Originally, they've taken a big step forward here recently. Originally, they had to put the chip in and still have a wire coming out of your head. So you actually had this thing that looked like you know, this huge electrical socket in your head. Um, and they had to keep it open constantly. Because I guess they have to be able to turn it off just in case something bad happens. So yeah, they um, there was a huge risk of infection 
Um, now what they've done is figured out how to make the chips wireless to where they can put it in your brain and then they can control everything wirelessly. See, John, I knew none of this. This is like a hot topic. Like, you should be writing about this too. Yeah, I probably will. Um, I mean, the reality is, I guess the big takeaway for people is I believe any limitation can be overcome. It's not always easy. Um, so so what, what would you say to someone, and I'm, I'm sorry yeah, to interrupt sure. because I know I just interrupted a, a valuable thought, so I really feel bad there, but uh, someone sitting and listening to this and saying, well, I just can't, I love to do X, but I can't. What's the first kind of ways or steps they should get out of that feeling? Yeah, that's so. The next article I'm publishing is about this. It's called uh, "It's Going Alive Next Week." It's called "How to Accomplish Big Things Even When You Feel Small." And um, the first step is actually getting yourself to believe it's not only possible but that it's normal. And what you have to do is, I mean, what what I call it is reconstructing reality. What I did before I launched my business is I was listening to to keep myself from going crazy and also because I was surrounded just by, I mean, my father was losing all of his money, my mother lost her job. I was surrounded by all of these horrible things. I started listening to audiobooks and podcasts four to eight hours a day. Wow. And the reason why, and it was all... I mean, so I listened to things like, uh, I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Christopher Reeve. I listened to things of people who had dealt with disabilities that had accomplished incredible things. And I found any podcast with inspirational stories. And I, my goal was to spend more time listening to those things than I spent actually in my own life. Why, why is that? Why was that your goal? And the reason why that was my goal is I think that if you spend the majority of your time in worlds where people are accomplishing incredible things, all of a sudden, that started to seem normal to me because I, I'd spent more time listening to people who had done incredible things than in my current life where it looked impossible. And it trained my brain to believe that it wasn't difficult because there were all of these other people who had already done it. And I spent so much time listening to it that um, it, it became normal. Did you actually feel like your thought patterns changed? Like once the word can't came up, you would instantly deflect into, well... There was Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president. and Yeah, yeah. So, and it even became, I started to hold myself to their standards rather than the standards that a caseworker at Medicaid might hold me to, right? And their lives became so real to me that, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you marinate a piece of meat, I was marinating my mind in incredibly inspirational stuff. And, I mean, there weren't as many podcasts in 2010. Now there are so many amazing podcasts like yours. So even, even the listeners listening to your podcast, 
if you're going through an extremely difficult time, try to spend more time listening to inspirational stories than you do dealing with negative stuff. And even if you're working, like when you're going to work, when you're at lunch, have earphones in your ears and be listening. Any, don't spend any time with negative people. Just sort of marinate your mind in these amazing things. And when you do that, your perspective will shift. And um, you will start to believe that you can do some of those things. And I believe that's the first step to sort of getting yourself into the position to where then you can take those steps. Because if you don't believe it's possible for you, you'll, you'll never do it, right? So you, what, what I deliberately did when I got started is I brainwashed myself into believing that these things were normal, everyday, commonplace. Um, What's the second step? So the second step is then to find out what the price is of what you want. So this is the other big thing that I realized. When I went to start a business, I also listened to biographies of successful business people. Um, and um, I mean, at the time, I mean, it was like Michael Dell, Richard Branson, people like that in 2010. Um, and when I listened to their biographies, I, I wasn't interested in their business strategies. What I was interested in is what was the price that they had to pay? to get to where they are. It's interesting that you think in that way, right? So most people would be interested in their business strategies and they wouldn't, it's sort of an unusual thing to think of, well, what was Michael Dell's price? Nobody would even care about that, yep. but you did. Why did you care about that? Because what I realized is, and I, I don't know where I learned this, but I, I learned it early on, that you can achieve anything you want, but there's always some sort of a price. And it's not always money. Usually it's some sort of sacrifice of your time. I mean, I mean, at the very least, you know, like starting a business, you're sacrificing years of your life investing it in this business. I mean, you're also, I mean, you're an entrepreneur too. What else are, are, what else are the sacrifices? I mean, a lot of people kind of call you a fool. A lot of the times they don't right, believe you. Right, you get a lot of hate. You get a lot of hate. You also deal with, you know, especially when you start hiring employees, worrying about what happens if the business goes under, feeling responsible for everyone and everything all the time. Most entrepreneurs don't really sleep very well. Um, so there are all of these sacrifices. And what I did in advance is I made a list of all of the sacrifices that I could see that they were making. And I asked myself, am I willing to go through that? But are you, when you do that, are you giving yourself or are you giving the listener an easy out? So automatically by default, when you start a business or when you start doing a side business while you still have your job, because you have to make a transition and it takes time, yep. you're going to be sacrificing family and relationships a little bit, yep. tiny bit maybe, or yep. a lot. So someone, that's an easy excuse for someone to say, well, that's one non-negotiable for me is, is any family time. So what you have to do then is find a goal that doesn't require you to sacrifice your family time. You have to find a, a business that doesn't require you to sacrifice your, your family time. But there's always going to be a little bit of family time to sacrifice. There is. I mean, so that's the reason why people don't achieve anything, is they're not willing to make the sacrifice. 
Because um, maybe though, but maybe they, you could say, okay, I'm sacrificing a little bit of family time and it's, but I can make up for it in other ways. I could find something else to sacrifice more. Yep. I mean, so one of the things you could do is say, I'm not willing to sacrifice family time, but I'm willing to sacrifice sleep. I had a friend that did that. I don't know if that's a wise choice. It's certainly a healthy but, thing that's not so healthy. Yep. Um, but that was the choice that he made is he was still going to spend time with his family, but he was going to sacrifice sleep. Um, but the, the point is, a lot of people are under the assumption that they can get whatever they want without trading something that they have. And that's just not the case. And I think whatever you want to achieve, and this can be business or anything else, look at what you have to trade to get there. Decide in your mind... I'm willing to make that sacrifice. And and there are even no guarantees. You could make that sacrifice and not get what you want, okay? You have to realize that too. Um, you may struggle and fail. A lot of people do. But to make to go into that realizing what the... having a total, completely realistic picture of what you're getting into... So, I mean, when I started my own business, I knew that if I wanted to grow it rapidly, I was going to have to dedicate myself to it, heart, mind, and soul. I knew that I probably wasn't going to sleep well. I knew that I was going to have a ton of stress. And I accepted that, and I was willing to pay that price. And so that's what allowed me to move forward without hesitation. And what would you say is step number three? So step number three is to put a gun to your head. And this is the most difficult one. So one of my favorite scenes of any movie uh, of all time was Fight Club, where Brad Pitt, who was playing Tyler Durden, got a guy out of a convenience store, put a gun to his head, said, what do you want to be in life? Says a veterinarian. He said, well, that requires a lot of schooling, right? He says, yeah, too much school. I, I couldn't do it. And he, he takes out his, his um, driver's license. He said, all right, I have your driver's license. I have your address. I'm going to come back in six weeks. If you're not going forward to become a veterinarian, you'll be dead. I'll kill you. And he says, all right, so run away. So the guy ran away. And he said... Tomorrow will be the best day of his life. And I think it's true. Now, it's a very extreme example. I'm not suggesting anyone put any guns to anyone's heads or, or, or threaten anyone's life. But one of the things that I'm a huge fan of, once you've decided what the price is, set up negative reinforcement to, to get yourself to do it. Like what? Like, for example, for me, the reason why I was able to achieve everything I achieved, if I failed, I was going into a nursing home. That was the scariest thing imaginable to me. Hmm. I, that was the gun to your head. That was the gun to my head. I had to do it. So I didn't for, have a choice. So for many people, uh, they could say, well, I could decide tomorrow, but they could do that for 40 years. But they could so, sort of, the gun to their head in this case is... If I wait till tomorrow, I'm going to get on that slippery slope that lasts 40 years, and that's my life. Yep. So, I mean, there, there are simple ways for things. So, like, um, one of the things I've heard of people doing 
and this requires a lot of courage, and it sounds crazy, but um, I had a friend who um, took naked pictures of herself when she was trying to lose weight, gave them to a friend, and said, if I don't lose 20 pounds within the next six months, I want you to post all of these naked photos of me where I'm fat on Facebook. It kind of almost sounds like a business idea. Send us your fat naked photos there, <laughs> with a timeline. There's a business called Stick, I think it is. Uh, can't recall if it's S-T-I-K-K dot com, something like that. That is their business. Um, is they hold you accountable with these things. I mean, there are other ideas like write an email resigning from your job and give it to a service that will automatically send it to your boss in six months. Mm. I mean, there are things like that that will... It's terrifying, okay, Th those types of things, but it will give you more energy and motivation than anything in the world. Um, so for me, the... I mean, people ask, you know, how did you do this? How did you start this business? I was absolutely, totally terrified of ending up in a nursing home someday. And that gave me endless energy and motivation. I was able to work harder. I mean, I, I worked like literally, when, when I moved down to Mexico, I didn't go down to the beach, even though I lived on the beach for six months. I just stayed in the condo and I was working. Nobody even knew I lived there. I just stayed in the condo and I was working 16, 18, 20 hours a day. And what's your end goal? Would you like to sell the business? Nowadays, uh, I mean, the type of business I run, it's so tied to my personality. It would be very difficult to sell. Um, more than likely, I'll just continue growing it. I mean, it's already relatively, if I wanted to, I could quit today. And it would still generate hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in income to me personally. Um, I want to, my goal right now is less about money and more about helping as many people as I can. Well, and, and uh, the site smartblogger.com has so many great articles, just free also about yep. blogging and so on. And there's their courses and, and, and so on plus your unstoppable.me site. Uh, I really appreciate you. You came here to the studio sure. and and joined me on this podcast. I'm sure it's it's inspirational to so many people. It wasn't Your story was inspirational to me, which is why I reached out to you. Well, John Morrow, smartblogger.com. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I hope people listen to this and and go to your, your site and, and apply your advice and, and learn from it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.